Some of you know that I am married to a woman who has many siblings, 12 in fact. I come from a family of two children. So I would imagine that our growing up years were very different. We have five kids and our perspective of how loud our house is compared to the volume that we can stand is also very different. She tolerates it a lot louder than I do and I just can't seem to get there. So this week I tried to facilitate some quiet time amongst my kids and I, I, I basically put them in competition against each other, which is just great. Say, okay, you guys are gonna do this. We started out with planks. It's a great idea. My three-year-old does a plank with, as a triangle, but straight in the air. And he's the first one out still. <laughs> and then my daughter screams the whole time, wanting to beat her older brother. And I just say, just give up. You just, you, all you have to do is quit. No, I gotta beat him. And it's like, I can, I can still tolerate that level of noise over just the general chaos, you know? And I was like, okay, let's try, let's try the quiet game. And I have four kids and they're out one at a time based on them saying something or making a sound with their body. It doesn't take very long, but it gains me about five to 10 minutes of semi-silence. And that's worth at least a dollar, you know? And so I promise my kids before we start, whoever wins gets a dollar. We did two or three games the first day and my son right after is quick to remind me, when are you gonna pay me my $2? It's like a pool shark, just trying to take my money. The next day we do it again. And ever since then, he's been reminding me, dad, you said you're gonna give me $4. All the parents in the room, you know, when you promise your kids money or candy or something, they're like elephants, they never forget. But everything else, they just don't remember at all, like closing the door, right? Or taking your shoes off the front. It just doesn't happen. But you say, I'm going to give you money, you remember that forever. It's insane. Last week, Aaron expounded upon uh, Hezekiah's confrontation of the lies from the Assyrian army. The Assyrian leader comes and questions, brings into question all of what God has said, all of what God has promised. What Aaron did last week was say, we need to be aware that these lies are present in our lives. What Hezekiah is doing in that moment is he is deciding Am I going to fear man or am I going to fear the living God? Another way you could put that is, are you going to resist the lie that is being told to you? Another way that you could do that, you could say that is, are you clinging, are you holding tightly 
to the promises of God. There's three different ways to say the same thing. Are you holding tightly to the promises of God? Jesus says in Matthew 12, he says, when a demon is cast out of a house, he gets the house all cleaned up and the demon is gone. The demon goes out to an arid place and can't find anywhere to stay. He says to himself, I'm going to come back to the house that I once was. And when he does and he finds it empty, he says to his friends, his seven other friends, come on with me. I have this place that we can stay. And Jesus says, that's actually much worse than you were before. This is not just about getting rid of the demon, the lies. I actually need to replace the lie with the truth. It just so happens that the the scriptures, God's word to us, is full of promises of him making a covenant with his people. So that's what we're going to focus on today. We're going to do that in 2 Kings chapters 20 and 21. We're going to look at Hezekiah's, the end of Hezekiah's life and how he sets up the next king, Manasseh, his son. And Manasseh's not really a great example of resisting the lie or holding tight to any promise of God, but there is this, there's this piece of the scripture in his testimony that Second Kings author records as a reminder to us of the promises of God, because that's what I want to focus in on today. Are we holding on tightly to the promises of God? You have them in your hand. You have them in your heart. If you're holding on to them, then what those promises are doing is they're fueling your faith. God's promises are meant to fuel our faith. Okay? So, I'm going to pick up where Aaron left off, Hezekiah's story. The Assyrian horde that is moving against the nation of Judah is completely wiped out because of the living God. Hezekiah and his army do nothing to defeat this nation. Right after this victory, the text says in chapter 20 that Hezekiah became very sick. So sick that the, the, his sickness started to spread out. The testimony of him being sick started to go out into the other nations. Isaiah, the prophet, comes to Hezekiah and says, your time's up, buddy. Time for you to go home. You're going to die. And Hezekiah, again, shows us what repentance looks like and weeps bitterly Isaiah leaves the room and he turns to to God. Hezekiah turns to God and says, please don't let me die. Please extend my life. And before Isaiah can make his way out of the palace, he again hears from the Lord and says, go back to Hezekiah and tell him, I'm going to extend his life. So Isaiah comes back. Hezekiah asks for a sign. What's the sign that God's going to do to to say that this promise will come true? Isaiah says, well, you ask. 
He says, how about the shadow on the steps come back 10 steps? And that's fulfilled. He's standing there and watches his shadow come back 10 steps. It's pretty crazy. But in that time frame, the nation of Babylon hears about Hezekiah's sickness. And they have not heard yet that he's been healed. His life's been extended. And so the, the king of Babylon sends ambassadors to the nation of Judah with a get well card and some presents. And by this time, Hezekiah is all, all fine. He's healed up. He sees the ambassadors coming and he welcomes them with open arms. This nation of Babylon, this enemy of Judah, welcomes them with open arms and says, hey, I'm so glad that you're here. What do you guys wanna do? Would you like a tour of my kingdom? Sure. So Hezekiah leads these ambassadors through every single space of Judah showing them all of his treasures, his precious goods, his spices, and they go home. Isaiah comes to Hezekiah again and says, hey, hey, Hezi, uh, what, what did you show these guys while they were here? And Hezekiah says, I showed them everything. There is nothing in this kingdom they haven't seen Isaiah says, are you sure you showed them everything? He's like, I showed them everything. The word of the Lord comes through Isaiah again, verse 16 through 18. He says, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which is your father's have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you and whom you will father shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the kingdom. See, the problem is, is that Hezekiah welcomes these people in and what he says to them through showing them around is, hey, look at my kingdom. Look how well I'm doing. And the Lord says, what? What? wait a minute, that's not at all how we were interacting before when you were sick. Hezekiah's response to Isaiah's prophecy. Verse 19, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, why not? If there will be peace and security in my days. And that sentence is what sums up Manasseh's reign. As long as it's going well for me, who cares about you guys? So Hezekiah dies. Manasseh takes his spot. At the ripe old age of 12, 12, he becomes the ruler of a nation. And the testimony of Manasseh in, in 2 Kings starts out like this, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the despicable practices of the nation whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. He did what was despicable before the Lord. It's the first thing that Manasseh does is he reverses Manasseh's tearing down of the idols in the high places. He restores them. 
He builds an Asherah and an altar to Baal. And then he goes a step further and he creates a, a worship center for every host of heaven. Judah becomes a place where if there's a God, you can worship him here. Then he goes another step further and he takes all of those gods and he brings them into the temple of God. So literally, you can walk anywhere in this, in this place, in this nation, and worship whichever God you want. Doesn't matter. You choose. It's a blue light special. Then, once that wasn't enough, he sacrifices his own child. And he goes another step further. And instead of going to the altars, he starts going to fortune tellers and omens and necromancers and mediums. But this is where the promise of God comes in. Second Kings 21, 7 and 9. In the carved image of Asherah that he had made, he set in the house of which the Lord said to David, to Solomon, his son, in this house, and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander anymore out of the name, out of the land that I gave to their fathers. If only they will be careful to do according to that I have commanded them. And according to all the law that, that my servant Moses commanded them, but they did not listen didn't listen. Did you catch that little insert in there? The, the biblical authors are actually inserting covenant language into Manasseh's story. You did this, but God promised something else. That language is throughout scripture. I will be your God and you will be my people. And here, the biblical authors are saying, this is the promise that you should be relying on. And so God sends in his prophets and says to Manasseh, look, I'm, I'm going to send people into your land and take what I want from it. I'm going to have my way. And the last thing that's recorded of Manasseh's testimony is that, is that he murdered the innocent to the degree in Jerusalem that Jerusalem's streets were filled with the innocent's blood. That's what the second king's writer leaves off with in regards to Manasseh. What I see in Manasseh's life is him making decisions that are exactly the opposite of God's promises. So I'm going to, we are going to flip them on their head. Manasseh's decision leads to a promise. You ready? First promise of God. Is that God promises pressure. God promises pressure. Like, Matt, that doesn't sound too fun. That doesn't sound like a promise that I want to be holding on to.
Manasseh begins his reign and he has a decision to make. Are you going to follow after the living God or are you going to follow after all of the other people in the land? 2 Kings 2, 21, 2. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the despicable practices of the nation. You ever read the Old Testament and wonder why God left these evil nations in the land? Couldn't God have just wiped them out and made it perfectly easy for the nation of Israel to live in the promised land without any pressure, without any hardship? He totally could have done that, but he didn't. He didn't, and he didn't for a reason. And the reason is he wants to pressure his children to make a choice. Are you going to follow after me, or are you going to go after the world? It's the hardships that cause us to ask that question, that bring us to our knees, that bring us to the table and say, are we? It seems like it would be much easier to just pursue life the way that the world is. I mean, it looks like they're doing pretty good. They don't have any problems, at least from what I can see. And my problems are massive. And I'm trying to be obedient to the Lord. Now put yourself in the shoes of a 12-year-old dictator. <laughs> of course, he's going to choose the easy way out, right? First Peter 4, 12 and 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when he, his glory is revealed. Wait a minute. Okay, so God, God is pressuring me and I'm supposed to rejoice in that? I was recently helping Joey build a shed. He got one of those kits from Home Depot. It's actually pretty sweet. And we were unloading some of the, was helping him frame the walls and stand them up. And as he's unloading these things, he, he finds this board. And I don't know if you notice, not only is Joey a fantastic youth pastor, but he's also a very skilled woodworker. And he pulls this board out of the package and the board has, let me quote him, it's, bowed, twisted, crooked, and cupped. All those things at one time. And for you people who work with wood, you know how jacked up this piece of lumber is. And both him and I, me being ignorant to the words of what I can look at the board and say, yeah, I don't know how we're going to use that thing. But we struggled through and made it worth it. But our first response was to complain. Why? What kind of moron would say, yeah, let's throw this in there? One of my first experiences on the Ingebretson homestead 
we were just visiting Kathy and Carrie, and I don't remember what he was working on, but something broke in the midst of him working on it. And I had a particular response to that. You know, like I thought this is the way this is going to go. The words that came out of Carrie's mouth were drastically different from what I was thinking. He said, praise God. And he didn't, it wasn't like a, like a, he didn't mean it. He meant his words. He didn't, he wasn't being facetious. He was generally said, genuinely said, praise God. I was like, I, what? If God's supposed to be with us, things are supposed to be going well, you know? But he's genuinely praising God for the problem that's set in front of him. First Peter, again, chapter one, six through nine, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved with various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In this you rejoice, I had a conversation recently with my neighbor who's going through a pretty rough trial. Uh, I highly doubt that um, they're believers, but in my conversation with him, as he's talking about this hardship that he's facing, he says, you know, Matt, God won't give you anything that you can't handle. And I, I've just become, I don't know, tired is a nice way of saying hearing that statement from people. God won't give you anything you can't handle. And I think, have you not read Genesis chapter three? Just read that one. Genesis chapter three is like, no, 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 you're gonna sweat to get everything you have. You know that food that you got for free? It's not gonna happen like that anymore. I'm gonna put pressure on you to make a decision. You're gonna follow me or you're gonna go after the world. That's the way it is. That's a promise. And that's just not a, that's not a bad promise. That's actually God's grace towards us to pressure us. Rejoice in God's promised pressure to initiate and grow our faith. Rejoice in it. So God, God promises pressure and then he promises something else. Manasseh sets up the idols and then he says I'm going to set them up all over the place and when that didn't work out when he put the idols of every god on the planet in Judah he says to himself I can't actually, I'm not getting what I want out of this. I'm not getting what I want out of this sacrifice. I'm not being provided for by these idols. And God comes in and he says, no, no, no. I want to be the God who provides for you. God promises that he's going to provide. But instead Manasseh says, no, no, what's, what's wrong with this situation is not the God that I'm pursuing or the capability of the idols to provide for me. It's my fault for not offering something worthwhile. 
And so he offers up his son. God can't provide. He won't provide. So I'm going to offer up something more. The lie compounds itself. Becomes not just the fault of the false God. But it's that I need to carry more of the burden. I need to sacrifice and do more. This is, uh, as I was thinking about this, is sacrificing a, a child. We, we live in a culture that, that thinks abortion's just fine. It's, you can choose. My body, my choice. It's what's, what's, what's being touted. It's not just that Abortion is the taking of a life. It's that the people that are involved are saying, God can't provide a way for me to get through this. See how that's, it's more than just taking life. It's the rejection of a promise. The people who are involved are saying, not only, God can't provide for me in this situation. He can't provide for me in this situation and me get what I want. He can't and he won't provide. The testimony of scripture is drastically different from that. Pretty much from the beginning. Abraham meets the living God and he asks him to follow him. Abraham says, yes, I'll follow you. God says, I promise I will make you a great nation. Make you a great nation. And then for years upon years, Abraham and Sarah wait for a child. Wait so long and then God and two angels show up to his camp and God says with an earshot of Sarah to Abraham, you're going to have a kid. I'm going to provide for you a kid. And Sarah busts out belly laughing. <laughs> you, this guy's crazy. There's no way. I'm, I'm so far beyond childbearing years that there's no way this is going to happen. And then what happens? She has a child. And then God's ask again. God's promise of provision happens. And in the same story is the promise of pressure. He comes to Abraham and says, okay, now I've given you what you needed. Now sacrifice him. Give him back to me. So Abraham takes Isaac to Mount Moriah. They're on the way up the hill. And Isaac looks around and says, Dad, we got some wood and we got some fire, but where's the, where's the sheep? Where's the sacrifice? What does he say? Genesis 22, 8. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. And right after that, 
as Abraham is about to sacrifice his son, the ram is caught and Abraham names God. You know his name as this even today. The text says that Abraham named God the God who will provide. The God who will provide. Second Peter 1, verse 2 and 3, grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called by his own glory and excellence. God's given you everything you need, not only just to live this life, but to live it in a godly way. So the problem isn't that we don't trust God to provide us, that we want to assume control. We want to solve our own problems. God's provision is what sustains and motivates us to keep going. Number three, God's promises are punctual. Manasseh's assembled all the idols, all of them. Then he ups the ante on his sacrifice. And when he doesn't get what he wants, then he starts to question everything and says, I've given more than I could handle at this point. I'm going to need something to come through here. And so he goes to the fortune tellers and the omens and the mediums and the necromancers looking for an answer. Why has this not come to fruition in my life? Why has my life the way that I want it not worked out? How many of you have have said that same exact phrase of God in your life? This was my plan. You didn't make it happen in the timeline. Therefore, you are to blame. I have done that. When I was in college, I wasn't following the Lord. Preface this story with that. Um, I had determined that the life that I wanted was to graduate school uh, and quickly get married. I wanted to get married. Wanted to have a, a pretty girl on my arm to make me feel more confident and loved. And in, uh, I don't remember exactly when, but before I graduated, I, I met a girl. And that was, that was pretty much my relationship with the Lord. I'll be obedient to you if you come through on the promise of delivering me my wife. How arrogant. So... We met, started dating. I graduated school. She was a little bit younger than me, still in school. And she decided that she had other plans than marrying me. And I was devastated. Do you know who the first person I blamed was? God, you didn't come through on your promises to deliver the life that I want. how ridiculous that is if 
Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. God has now revealed to us his mystery, his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plan. And this is the plan that at the right time, he will bring everything good under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth, everything. God's timeliness is perfect because he is the alpha and omega. He's the one who is in the beginning and in the end, and everything in between is under his providence, under his control, under his sovereignty. And we look at him and say, why didn't this one little thing work out in my life the way that I wanted it to? What's happening in that moment is that our perspective is so small and his is so grand. We're looking at this one thing in our lives and he's saying, no, 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 I have a plan to redeem all of humanity and I'm gonna make that happen. You wanna be on part of that? All of my plans should be submitted to that plan. God's timeliness is perfect because he's in the beginning and he's in the end. So God pressures, he provides, and he's timely. And lastly, God promises to restore. God promises to restore. Manasseh becomes so deeply entrenched in what he wants out of this life that he says to himself, Murder is not going to stand in between me and what I want. And he fills the streets of innocent people and their blood. He says to himself, I'll murder the innocent in order to get what I want. Do you know anyone else who says that? God Almighty said that. I'll sacrifice my son, the innocent savior, in order to redeem my people. And what's, uh, what's interesting about this story of Manasseh is it's not recorded in 2 Kings, but if you hop over to the Second Chronicles, you'll see that God came through on his promise to send in Babylon and capture his people. And they led Manasseh away in hooks and chains into captivity. And in captivity, Manasseh gets on his knees and says, God, please don't let me die. Even this man who set up all the idols, who sacrificed his own child, who said, God, you don't know what you're doing in your own time frame, and you aren't capable of providing for me. God steps in and restores Manasseh, says, no, 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 
my grace is sufficient for you too. God promises to restore. And he does that through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. And when he sacrificed, he's offering you righteousness. And then he goes beyond that to restore you. He offers you another promise, which he calls a guarantee. Second, Second Corinthians 1, 20 through 22. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. This is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and has also put his seal on us and given us his Holy Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. A guarantee for your righteousness and a future with him. There is no greater promise than that. Chris, you guys, come on up. God presses us to choose. He provides along the way in his perfect timing, and he restores us. His promises are far greater. If you are knee deep in the thick of following after God, don't give up. His promises are perfect. Keep going. The world can't offer you anything more. And at the same time, the promises for his bride, the church, are equally relevant to all of those who are knee-deep in sin or wallowing in selfish desires. For those of you who, are, who feel like you're far off from the Lord, there is no greater promise keeper than Jesus. And he's proven it because his death on the cross has already happened. It's a historical fact. He died on a cross and rose again. No one else can claim that. So you need to say yes to Jesus today for the first time. Should have head over to our prayer team in the back. We'd love to pray for you. If you are knee deep in the thick of following after him, meet with him in communion. Give, offering stations are set up in the back. For the rest of us, sing your hearts out to a Savior who is mighty and restores. We pray. Father, I ask that you would make your promises true again and again in our lives and that you would help us come before you humbly 
expectant for your promises to come true in our lives. God, may we be people who are dead set on seeing your promises bear the truth about who you are and what you've accomplished in us, your goodness and your faithfulness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, and here's the invitation. Uh, and I appreciated what, what Matt said, especially at the beginning of, of your sermon, Matt, which was there's a lot of different ways we could, language we could use to communicate this. But we, some of us are in a place where we are making a decision. We're in the middle of making a decision whether we're going to trust God or not trust him, whether we will believe his promises and act on them or not, whether we will submit ourselves to him and his leadership or not, whether we will have a God is good but or not. And so you may be in that place. Many of us approach different seasons of our lives that we are confronted with things that are honestly, they seem to be more than we can handle. And we come to the Lord and go, you're good, but also, and we have this, this other thing where we want to take control of that and hold it to our own. So the invitation's out. Uh, before you now, as always, you guys know, now's the moment, now's the time to act on that. But as you kind of head out into your day and lunch and whatever else, you guys can, of course, get prayer after the service, but uh, hold that before the Lord. What are the things that he's, that he's poking and prodding this morning? Where is the invitation for you? And where is the indecision there where you want to hold something rather than surrender it to the Lord and courageously and with faith confront the thing that scares you the most that God wants to work with in you? Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you, guys. Um, we don't officially end at 1230, so hang out. Say hi to one another. You can help with tear down. We've got lots of chairs, hallway. You guys know all the stuff. And then we will be using the side entrance on the way out as well. God bless you guys as you go into your week.